Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at the tree. Uh, the tree was written in 1920, published in October 1921 in Tryout. Um, this was a amateur journal that Lovecraft wrote a lot of things for, including a lot of poems. And I think he published uh, the story we just looked at uh, as well there. What was that story? Um, I already forgot. Uh, the Terrible Old Man. He might have published that in, in that journal as well. Yeah, just looked it up. It was also published in Tryout. So before he started publishing in Weird Tales, he published in a lot of weird amateur journals and, and kind of small small fan magazine type things, uh, including one of some of his stories that have later become quite famous, such as uh, Herbert West Reanimator. Reanimator. That was in a journal called Homebrew. Um, but anyways, um, this story, The Tree, is... I mean, it's kind of a horror story. It's it's more of a fantasy, I would say, um, and it's it's got some interesting things for us to talk about. Um, it's set in in ancient Greece. I think this is the only story of his. He's, I'm sure some poems were, but this is the only story of his set in ancient Greece. Um, a lot of his stories obviously harken back to ancient times in various ways. You know, even deeper than ancient history, but setting a story in ancient times is not really what he does that often, but he does it here in the tree. Um, so it's set in Arcadia, and um, we are introduced, um, actually we're, we're already given an, an image of decay, um, so it's got kind of a gothic setting set in, a, in, in ancient Greece. Uh, right in the first paragraph, we get at one end of the tomb, its curious roots displacing the time-stained blocks of pentelic marble grows an unusually large olive tree of oddly repellent shape. Um, of course, this is uh, at some time after the setting of the, of the story, but it's not clear when, um, when the narration takes place. The vast majority of the story is a flashback to, to ancient ancient times, but um, it's not clear when this narration takes place. But anyways, it's just the first paragraph is just setting up most of the story, which is the story being told by an old beekeeper who lives in a, a nearby cottage to the narrator. Now, basically, the story the narrator has gotten about this tree, which looks like a grotesque man or a death-distorted body of a man, um, that the country folk and this is a story that he kind of picks up on, the narrator, is that this is like a haunt of Pan, the court-dreaded Pan. Um, actually, one of uh, Lovecraft's earliest poems, juvenile poems, was about Pan. I didn't talk about that in the previous episode uh, where I, when I was looking at those poems, but he did, did write an interesting little uh, poem about um, the great god Pan. Um, that's obviously the name of an important story in the, in the, in the history of weird fiction. <clears throat> But anyways, this, that's the story that's kind of passed around this neighborhood. So we got uh, a source of knowledge here, um, these vernacular networks of knowledge, something I've been pushing a lot as a, that arguing should be an important theme when we look at Lovecraft. Um, forgetting, remembering, especially the forgetting part of it, but then knowledge being sustained by um, working class networks, whether they're sailors, 
peasants and neighboring villages or whatever. Um, just the stories passed around, right? For Lovecraft, there's some truth in these that's as powerful as the truth in, in old books like the Necronomicon. But anyways, that's what's this, that's the one story. But he gets this other story from this old beekeeper, which leads us into the whole story of, of the tree. So many years ago, again, it's not clear when the narration takes place, but it couldn't have been thousands of years, I don't think. Um, but who knows? Um, so many years ago... Uh, when this hill, when this village was new, there were two sculptors, Kalos and Musides, and they were kind of blood brothers almost, who, who both are famous sculptors, lo fam locally famous sculptors, and they're both highly skilled. Um, quote from Lydia to Neopolis: "The beauty of their work was praised, and none dare say that the one excelled the other in skill." So that they're they're both equally good in different ways. Uh, they have very different personalities. Um, so Kalos, um, he did a statue of Hermes, and Musides did a statue of Pallas that, that's in the part, near the Parthenon. So I don't know if it's implied here it's one of the Parthenon marbles. I guess the Parthenon marbles were once on the Parthenon, not nearby it. I'm not sure. Obviously the British looted those and, and took them to Great Britain. <clears throat> But anyways, all men pray, praised Kalos and Musidides, and they, they have this kind of brotherly friendship as well as uh, an artistic jealousy. But that artistic jealousy never reached any, to a point where it could interfere with their brotherly love for, another, for each other. Um, we're told then that these are very, very different people. Kalos is uh, kind of a weird mystic. Uh, quote, Kalos would remain at home, stealing away from the sight of his slaves into the cold recesses of the olive grove. There he would meditate on the visions that filled his mind and there devised the forms of beauty which later became immortal in breathing marble. Idle folk indeed said that Kalos conversed with the spirits of the grove and that his statues were but images of the fauns and dryads he met there for he patterned his work on no living model. Meanwhile, Musidides is more at home kind of in revelry and partying at night. So um, Kalos is getting his inspiration from the forest at night and Musidides is, is, is always on some kind of bender. Um, so anyways, the, 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 as the plot advances, we learn that the tyrant of Syracuse, another Greek city-state, um, tyrants were the, you know, it was a type of leader in ancient Greece that would come in during times of crisis. Now, officially, tyrants were, were people who gained power by like some non-constitutional means within whatever the policies, the rules, the, the traditions of that particular city-state were. There was like 200-some city-states, each with their own political traditions. And tyrants often, often emerged off and on in, in, in ancient Greece. I mean, Wikipedia says um, this of it. Uh, a tyrant is... Oh no, so the philosophers Plato and Aristotle defined a tyrant as a person who rules without law, using extreme and cruel methods, both against his own people and others. Um, early history. Um, let's see what else here. Yeah, it kind of comes out of populism, and, and it's, it's kind of rooted in these kind of class wars of the ancient world, you know, where there was deep class tensions, and the normal kind of institutions of government 
did not really allow for catharsis of those class tensions. And so once in a while, when the society really reached a crisis, a tyrant would emerge uh, to, to kind of rectify that, right? And it kind of carries on through the Roman Republican eras. Anyway, that doesn't really matter that much. Um, but Syracuse has this tyrant at this time, and he goes and commissions statues um, from these two uh, Mediterranean-wide famous artists. Um, quote, their brotherly love was well known, and the crafty tyrants surmised that each, instead of concealing his work from the other, would offer aid and advice, this charity producing two images of unheard beauty, the lovelier of which would eclipse even the dreams of poets. So he commissions two statues, hoping that there'll be some collaboration, leading to an even greater statue. Uh, so the two sculptures get to work um, almost immediately. And, you know, they work in private, but uh, collaborate on, on their, as the tyrant intended. Um, so the nights go on as before. So Musidides continues to hang out at the banquet halls. Uh, while Kalos wandered alone in the olive groves. Um, but a change takes place, and that is Musidides starts to get depressed. And the reason he gets depressed, it's revealed in the next paragraph, is that Kalos has some kind of illness, and he's declining quite quickly. So Musidides kind of falls into depression and anxiety over this. His work begins to suffer, and the statues remain incomplete. Quote, hidden behind heavy curtains stood the two unfinished figures of Tyche, little touched of late by the sick man and his faithful attendant. Kalos continues to grow weaker and weaker, and, um, you know, eventually he, he dies. He dies with his work yet incomplete. And Musidides promised to Kalos before he died that he would produce a sepulcher, a tomb for him. He would craft a tomb for him in the olive grove so that the place he loved to be in, he could stay he could stay with the dryads and the nymphs and, and, and Pan and all that. Uh, now, another thing that Kalos wanted him to do was to plant these olive twigs from the grove uh, close to Kalos's head, right? Now, Musidides, after finishing the tomb, continues his work on the, the statue of Tyche for the, for the tyrant of Syracuse, even though he's emotionally distraught by the loss of his friend. Um, quote, meanwhile, his evenings were spent beside the tomb of his friend where the young olive tree had sprung up near the sleeper's head, end quote. So he kind of takes over the role of Kalos in that he's spending his nights in, the, in essentially an olive grove, grove instead of partying it with uh, or engaged in some kind of debauchery. So some years later, three years, in fact, after the death of Kalos, uh, Musidides sends a message to the tyrant that the statue was finished. And at this time, as the statue is nearing completion, so is this olive tree that's been planted near Kalos's head uh, or near his body, also is growing to, quote, amazing proportions exceeding all other trees of its kind and setting out a singularly heavy branch above the apartment in which Musidides labored. And this all sets up the climax of the story where the tyrants, emissaries come to this city to collect the statue. And when that happens, there's a major storm that washes through the town. And it, when this happens, the branch of this olive tree that's grown up breaks. This large branch that's overhanging the studio of Musidides, it breaks. It smashes the statue into little pieces, 
and the tyrant, you know, never gets his statue of Tyche. In fact, the destruction is so vast that nothing can be found at all, quote, and their fear and dismay increased when they searched the fallen apartment for of the gentle Musides and of the marvelously fashioned image of Tyche, no trace could be discovered. Amidst of stupendous ruin, only chaos dwelt, and the representatives of the two cities left disappointed. Syracusans, that they had no statue to bear home. Tegans, that they had no artist to crown. However, the Syracusans obtained, after a while, a very splendid statue in Athens, and the Tegans consoled themselves by erecting in the Agora marble temple, commemorating their gifts, virtues, and brotherly piety of Musidides. Um, so that's basically the story. We end with, a, a, we're back to the beekeeper, um, you know, the first and last paragraph in the narration set and sometime after, maybe centuries after this. But the point is this olive grove still stands and the tree, the one that destroyed the statue, um, also exists. So we got the, again, kind of a reminder that this knowledge has been passed on um, and has reached the beekeeper. And it's a little bit different than the, sto the popular story, which is tied to Pan. It, it's not entirely wrong in that Kalo seemed to have some connection to the dryads and nymphs, and they're, of course, associated with Pan. And so the, that kind of a, um, sylvan kind of mystique of the olive grove is in both stories, right? But this one seems much more grounded in actual historical events and not pure mythology. But, but maybe at the root, there, there's a similarity there, and maybe they... Maybe it's kind of how, how stories kind of morph, right? Like the game of telephone. And one just kind of gets simplified and vulgarized for the masses. But the beekeeper, for some whatever reason, has the true story carried down to him. Um, so that's the story. It's, um, there's not a whole lot more for me to say about it. I mean, it, does, it, is, a, it is a fine story about kind of brotherly kind of love and artistic and creativity and, and two creative people working close together and, and reaching this very intimate relationship through their art. Um, it doesn't become a competition like a, another storyteller might have made it, just uh, done, done the complete opposite and made it this competition breaks up that friendship. He doesn't go that way. He keeps that relationship very, very pure. Uh, you got this nice supernatural element in which uh, you know, it's almost like Kalos through this olive branch destroys this other statue rather than to not create with his brother the, uh, this work of art, right? Um, but I think the most interesting thing for, he, for me here is this, the role of, of how knowledge gets passed down generation to generation and how you get completing stories about something as simple as a, a tree that looks a little bit weird or is a little bit bigger than it should be or is a little bit older than most of the neighboring trees. So um, the story works. Yeah, it's not one of his best. It's not one of his most famous, but I think it works and it has uh, some value to check out. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to keep this episode short for you. But in the next episode, we're going to um, look at the Cats of Ulthar, and this one will be dedicated to the, my stray cat that I adopted and brought into my house, uh, Rusty, uh, a, a ginger tabby that um, has been, um, you know, about three, four months old, but spent about three weeks now in this house. And he's quite happy. And so that episode will be dedicated to 
for my new feline friend. So I look forward to sharing my thoughts about the cats of Ulthar um, in the future. Um, but for now, um, that's it. That's my thoughts on the tree. If you have your own thoughts about the tree, let me know. Um, it's Like I said, it's not one of his most important, but um, it's, it's, it's worth the few minutes it takes to read it. Um, but that's going to be it for now, so I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>